3: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. My guest today is Steve Case, who's chairman and CEO of the investment firm Revolution. You know him as co-founder of AOL, and he has a brand new book, The Rise of the Rest. Steve, thanks for being on the podcast. Great
4: to be with you, Bob.
3: What do you hope to achieve with this book?
4: Well, I've been working on this effort for about a decade trying to Shine a spotlight on entrepreneurs all around the country that are building amazing companies in the process, renewing their communities, creating job growth, economic growth. Uh, but their stories aren't really told, uh, and most people don't really know what's happening in in most of these uh, cities. And so that was the reason to write the book. It, it was a you know, long journey for me when we I was, I started a, a little over a decade ago, working on this initially on a policy uh, kind of framework, working. Uh, for the uh, President Obama and his, uh, his jobs council also chairing a White House initiative called Startup America. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized there was a problem we needed to solve, but also an opportunity we should seize. And so that's led me to this effort over the last decade of of trying to help entrepreneurs uh, in in these, what we call, rise of the rest cities outside of the normal you know, tech hubs. So for those who don't follow this, uh, if you look at the data, the venture capital data, about 75% of venture capital has gone to just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. So the other 47 states are kind of fighting over the remaining 25%. And we're trying to change that dynamic, get more of the capital, backing more of those entrepreneurs and more of the cities around the country.
3: So how bad or good are things in the other 47 states? Well, it's
4: a mixed bag, and that's part of, part of what I tried to you know, explain in the book. The, the bad is that for the last several decades, a lot of people in the middle of the country uh, who wanted to be part of what we think of as the innovation economy, the tech sector, the startup sector, concluded they had to leave where they were to go to the coast because the action uh, in terms of other people, the action in terms of where the money was, was in places like Silicon Valley, so that actually led to a brain drain in many parts of the you know, the country, um, and you know what what we were hoping to see is a slowing of the brain drain and a you know kind of a boomerang of people returning to some of these cities, and some of that's been accelerated by the by the pandemic. So the talent has always been there, but the opportunity hasn't been there, and that's led to some of these you know these dynamics. Uh, th- what's encouraging to me is just what's happened in the last few years. There's far more. Uh, focus on these cities than there was a decade ago. There's a lot of new venture firms that have started up in these rising cities. 1,400 new venture firms have started in cities outside of San Francisco, outside of New York, outside of Boston in these these rising cities. There's a six-fold increase in the venture capital in in those cities. Uh, But perhaps most importantly, there's now a recognition that some of the big uh, potential opportunities for entrepreneurs and for investors in this next decade are going to be as sort of the internet meets the real world and big sectors like healthcare or food and agriculture are, are you know reimagined and disrupted and in those sectors expertise matters domain expertise matters partnerships matter and that's actually going to advantage I think some of the entrepreneurs in these rising cities even though they've been largely disadvantaged for the past you know couple of decades
3: Well, okay, let's start with the framework uh, let's start with the bus tours so You pick a city or multiple cities, you get people in a bus, you go, and in each city, you give $100,000 investment to what you feel is the best uh, startup. How'd you come up with the idea and what are the logistics of the bus excursions?
4: Well, the idea, we started this a little over eight years ago, and the original idea was building on some of that work I mentioned with the White House, the Startup America effort, Why don't we just hit the ground and see what's happening in in different cities around the country and in the process try to showcase some of the things that are positive developments in in those cities and also see what we could do to to help this next generation of entrepreneurs. And so, frankly, didn't quite know what we're going to get into when we did the first one, but uh, we did a tour that included cities like Detroit and Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Nashville. Those were the first ones we did. And we found it remarkable to 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 see what's happening on the ground to use the bus. Uh, a little bit as a media prop to get attention and, and, you know, local media to pay more attention to the the entrepreneurs, even getting national media. A few years ago, 60 Minutes Follow Us Around did a story, for example. So that was part of the reason to have a bus. The other was just practically to get between city and city and around the cities, visiting different companies and, you know, universities and so forth. The, the bus was helpful. But the, the thing that was most helpful, uh, and this was one of the things I didn't really fully appreciate going into it, was using the bus as sort of a platform to bring people together, a platform for convening and and the cities we visited, now it's, it's dozens and dozens of cities, uh, we found it really is important to make sure people in those cities are aware of what each other is doing. There's not as much of a connectivity that, that you really need to have a thriving startup community. So the bus has been a, a helpful way to, to bring people together and, and, and within the community, as well as invite people from other places, either journalists from the coast or investors from the coast, to see firsthand what's happening in some of these cities.
3: Okay. Are we literally talking like a music tour bus with sleeping bunks, yep. et cetera?
4: No, not the bunks. Not the bunks. We 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 get we it, 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 we do uh, you know lease a tour bus that is generally used by musicians or politicians doing campaigns and so forth, and and we kind of wrap it with our logo, the Rise of the Rest logo, and and, and images, and and uh, so we do not sleep on the bus because we we do bring we pack the bus pretty full. Uh, So it's not quite like a rock and roll tour bus, but it it certainly within the city, uh, we do use it, as I said, to move around and, and also to bring people together.
3: So on one of these typical ventures, how many people are inside the bus?
4: Well, it's pretty full. I'm not sure what the I'm not sure I will, you know, want to report the number because it probably breaks some fire codes. But we, we pack them in pretty, you know, pretty, you know, pretty tight. Uh, and as we're moving around, we have different people coming and going. Sometimes the governor, the mayor, the university presidents, CEOs of big companies. You know, there, there are some of the people that we try to in, invite on. So it's definitely dozens and dozens of people that are, that are on the bus. And over the course of, of the time we're in a particular city, it's, it's probably upwards of 100 people that join us for some you know, some part of it. And then the events we do in, in different cities, uh, including, uh, you mentioned, so we do a pitch competition. We invite companies in the city to, to apply to pitch, generally get you know close to 100 companies kind of uh, putting their hands up. Then we have a team that picks the best eight or 10 to be on stage, and then we have a panel of, of uh, judges that you know, d- joins me in, in deciding which is the one that is most promising, and then we do invest in, in that company and have found that others will, because they're on stage and, and are telling their story to a bigger audience, generally, you know, sometimes like three, four, five hundred 500 people are at these events, uh, that many of the other companies also get, you know, some uh, some attention and sometimes some funding as well. So it's not just the winner. It's sort of it's it's trying to spotlight what's what's unique about uh, some of these some of these cities.
3: And how many other professional investors would be on one of these bus tours?
4: Again, it depends on the city. Depends on uh, how many people join us at any particular you know, time. But generally, uh, for these tours, there's you know a couple of dozen coastal investors that join us for some some part of it, just trying to see firsthand what's what's happening in 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 some of these uh, cities.
3: Okay, you read the book, and it appears like I'll use the term "underground" because many people are unaware of them. There's a startup scene everywhere you go. Is there a startup scene in every city in America?
4: I wouldn't say there's a startup scene in every city in America, but there's definitely a startup scene in dozens of cities in America, and, and we've obviously profiled quite a number of them uh, in the book. We now have investments with our Rise the Rest fund in a hundred different cities. Uh, and so it is much more widespread than people think. When I first start ta- started talking about rise of rust, people say, "Oh, I, I get it." There's opportunities to back companies outside of you know Silicon Valley or New York City or Boston, which are you know, where most of the action historically has been. But they assume it's like one or two cities. Well, maybe Austin is doing you know pretty well, or Chicago is doing pretty well, or you know. The, the, there's no sense that it's actually dozens of cities that are showing real. Real momentum in terms of what's happening in 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 terms of uh, startups and you know the the resulting benefits they can provide to to companies. So that's been the real aha moment for me as I've traveled around over the last decade, and that's certainly been the most common you know kind of uh, feedback I get based on people who've read the book, as they are surprised that that it, it, so many cities, each doing it in their own particular way, that really are uh, emerging. So you're right, it's kind of like a little bit of a underground that is now becoming much more more visible
3: now you talk about universities in the book being a generation of talent and that talent staying in the t- city as opposed to going to the coast but generally speaking you invested in a hundred cities what is creating the startup culture or you just can't keep startup entrepreneurs down
4: well entrepreneurs at the core see a problem and decide it's an opportunity and decide to do something about it. And for them, that's starting a company. Um, and that insight in terms of seeing a problem and, and believing it's an it's a opportunity is something that's you know pretty widespread, pretty universal. Uh, it's just that in certain places it's encouraged and other places it's not. In some cases, actually, it's discouraged. You know, entrepreneurship, startups are viewed as kind of too risky in, in, in some places. Uh, and that's what leads to this this dynamic we talked about before, where people feel like they kind of have to get out of Dodge. The where, where they're living uh, is not really conducive to starting a company. Uh, uh, it is are not going to be able to attract the the money they need, they aren't going to be able to track the talent they need to build a team. Uh, they're not going to be able to get the attention they need to really scale up. And so they feel like they have to leave. And I think that's sad. And so we're trying to create a, a dynamic where people really can decide where they want to live, decide where they want to you know, kind of build, as opposed to feeling like they have to be in a certain place where they really don't have kind of a, a shot. And there's some parallels. Obviously, you, you've done a great job over several decades, obviously, c- chronicling the music industry there's some parallels there that there there was a time where if you wanted to be in the music industry, you kind of had to be in in New York City or or Los Angeles. So if you're in the movie industry, you know, similarly, kind of Hollywood was the place to be. If you're in the the financial services industry, Wall Street was the place to be. And 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 now over the last half century. Uh, while those cities still have a lead and there's still reasons to be there, benefits to be there, you know, you know there's many ways you're creating music, many ways you're creating you know, movies and you're less tethered to a particular plate. The, the tech industry is still largely tethered to Silicon Valley and that's starting to change. And I think that change will accelerate in the next you know, 10 or 20 years. And that's a positive because one of the things that really uh, surprised me when I first started working on this, uh, as I said, over a decade ago, Uh, It was uh, two data points. One, I mentioned that 75% of venture capital goes to three states. The other is that most of the jobs in this country are not created by small businesses or by big businesses. But by new businesses, companies under five years old, basically startups, that small business as a sector accounts for a ton of jobs, it's very important. Uh, but as a sector, it doesn't grow a lot of jobs. And it kind of makes sense because if a restaurant goes out of business, chances are some other restaurant will take over that space and will probably hire about the same number of people Similarly, with the big companies, the Fortune 500 companies, some are growing, but some are declining. And as a sector, it ends up being uh, kind of, uh, you know, kind of balances itself out. So if you're going to create jobs, you've got to back new companies and if if in order to start a company it's not always required that you raise capital to start a company some are able to bootstrap those companies but most of the biggest companies that have had the most success create the most jobs create the most economic uh, you know kind of growth and vitality do raise venture capital well then it's kind of a disconnect if if that capital is not available to most people in in uh, in most places and so leveling the playing field so that everybody who has an idea feels like they have a shot at, if they want to starting a company and, and they feel like they can do that wherever they are as opposed to feeling like they're kind of left out and left behind and don't really have a, a shot at building, a, frankly, a shot at the American dream is something that I think it's important to uh, address both to maximize the Number of innovations that come out of this country, the new ideas that that you know kind of lead to new companies and even lead sometimes to new industries, uh, and it's also, frankly, the best way to maximize the likelihood of the United States continues to be the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world. That's not you know kind of guaranteed. There's some risk to you know the United States based on what's essentially been the globalization of entrepreneurship over the last you know couple of decades. Over ninety percent of venture capital twenty five years ago was invested in the in the United States of global venture capital, and now it's under 50%. So other countries have figured out that innovation entrepreneurship is kind of the secret sauce that's kind of made America America, and they're trying to kind of of win the next industries. And so we need to double down on innovation entrepreneurship, and we need to do it in a more inclusive way. So it's not just certain people in certain places doing it really well, and and, uh, other people in other places feeling kind of left out and left behind.
3: Okay. In Silicon Valley, you had the transistor, you had Fairchild. So you grew up, uh, these businesses grew up around technological innovation to begin with. To what degree is it a matter of like COVID where people work remote it being one issue so you can work anywhere? Or do these locations actually come with advantages that you don't get on the coasts?
4: Uh, both the, the, the first a little backstory. Even even if you look at the the early days of the internet when companies like uh, mine AOL got started we were in northern virginia outside of washington dc but that first wave of internet the first you know kind of couple dozen companies that ended up playing a key role in, in building the internet building on ramps to the internet were fairly regionally distributed you know, as I mentioned, we were in the D.C. area. Hayes, the big modem company, was in Atlanta. CompuServe, one of the early online services, was in Columbus, Ohio. IBM's PC operations were in Boca Raton, Florida. Sprint, the communications company, was in Kansas City. Uh, you know, the, uh, Dell was in Austin. Microsoft actually started in Albuquerque until you know, they moved to, to Seattle. So the, the, a lot of companies were all across the country. It was only in the last 20 years where you know, it shifted from building the internet to building software on top of the internet. Uh, that's really when Silicon Valley grew to, you know, kind of its prominence, indeed its, its dominance. I think in this next era, this next wave, what I've called the internet third wave, uh, it is sort of when the internet meets the real world, and that's when some of these sectors that we've been talking about, like healthcare and, and food and others, start getting disrupted. And some of the expertise you need, and some of the credibility you need to establish partnerships in those sectors, are you know in the middle of the country. You know, healthcare, for example, it, it depends on obviously what you're, you're trying to build there. But if you're trying to build a disruptive healthcare company, you, you're going to need partnerships with hospitals, so they actually integrate what you're building and, you know, you need to get doctors and nurses to actually use it. You need to get health plans to actually pay for it. Uh, And having some connection to that industry, some insights into that industry, some relationships with people in that industry likely will advantage you if you're trying to get a deal with you know Cleveland Clinic in Ohio or Mayo Clinic in Minnesota or MD Anderson in Texas or Johns Hopkins in, in Maryland, some of the key co- companies that could really help put your your company on on the map. So there is some value to these rising cities in this next era we're entering. But to the other part of your question, there absolutely is something that's happened during the pandemic where it has been a unlock. Uh, the sense that you had to be in certain places is, is less clear. There's clearly more flexibility in terms of how you live and where you live and how you work and and, and the whole idea of more hybrid work and remote work is un- opening an opportunity for people to decide where they want to live and not feel like they have to be in a certain place and for companies. And as a result, you're seeing an acceleration of companies starting in these these rise of the rest cities. So I think it's it's both factors. This next era, there are certain cities that give you an advantage, uh, but also there is this pandemic induced almost shake the snow globe moment where we're as a society trying to figure out this next chapter and clearly flexibility is is uh, is part of it
0: welcome to 500 greatest songs a podcast based on rolling stones hugely popular influential and sometimes controversial list i'm Brittany spanos
1: and i'm rob sheffield we're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great
0: Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list.
1: We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them.
0: From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time.
1: There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett or how the yeah, yeah, yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyoncé's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
5: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Okay. Historically, the image of an inventor was a lone guy tinkering in the basement. But in the book, you make a strong statement about network effects, community, to what degree today is important to call on a team, or does the lone inventor still have a role?
4: Well, the the lone inventor is a little bit of a, you know, kind of Figment of imagination. Most important thing, you know, Thomas Edison a century ago was was invented a lot of things, but he wasn't really doing it on his own. He always had you know teams that helped take those ideas and, and scale them. And certainly, we've seen that uh, in the work I've done, including with the with with AOL. It required a mix of skill sets, and I, I provided a certain you know kind of a perspective, but I you know absolutely couldn't have done it on my own. It required a, a team, and I've learned that entrepreneurship is a a team sport as we enter this new era uh, where the problems you're solving as entrepreneurs tend to be more complicated more multifaceted where partnerships do become more important even understanding policy often becomes more important uh, you've got to have a broader you know broader skill set and so uh, that that is, I think, going to increasingly be the story of entrepreneurship. In fact, sometimes I think we celebrate the the entrepreneur too much and not the team that really takes that idea and and turns it into something you know, significant. They, that that team should get more yeah you know, more attention. And there's also something which is part of your question to clustering of, of of people. And and you know, there's something to when a company is successful in a city, what we call a tentpole company that leads to other success in that city. And we've seen that in the last couple of decades in Austin. Uh, the success of Dell there is, has really been helpful. The success of the South by Festival got a lot of people visiting Austin that otherwise wouldn't have visited Austin. And as a result, it became a, a magnet for, for for people. And now there's hundreds of companies, uh, that, startups that have, have great success there. And that was not the case, you know, two, three decades ago. And so this tentpole company dynamic is critical. I mentioned uh, Microsoft moving to Seattle the only reason Microsoft moved to Seattle is the two founders, you know, Bill Gates and Paul Allen were from Seattle and they wanted to go home. That's why they moved to Seattle. At the time, Seattle was struggling. It, you know, it was over reliant on some industries that were in decline uh, and didn't really have a new act. And you know, because uh, Microsoft uh, ended up scaling there. And became a tech hub because Microsoft was there. Jeff Bezos actually got in a car, left New York City to drive to Seattle when he was starting Amazon, for one reason and one reason only. He was he wanted to hire some Microsoft engineers, so he figured he could pick off some of those Microsoft people to to build. To build Amazon. Now, Amazon, of course, has has become a very successful company, also, you know, strengthened the, the Seattle startup ecosystem. So, what was a struggling city just a few decades ago now is a thriving city. And the success of some companies leads others, you know, companies to start up and some of the early. Employees at those companies, you know, want to be part of some new companies, or they have made some money on stock options. Want to invest in new companies, and it creates that positive, kind of increasing returns, network effect, kind of tipping point dynamic for cities. And that's one of the things we're seeing more of in the, in, the, in recent years. And again, that's part of the reason I even wrote the book because I think people don't realize what's happening in, in in these cities, and 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 I think they will be surprised, and frankly, also encouraged that they that this innovation economy in this next. Uh, next chapter uh, can be more inclusive, and that really ties also in, you know, at least to a degree, with some of the political dysfunction we have in this country, where where you know there's we're in these tribes, and there are a lot of factors. Obviously, I don't want to make it overly you know simplistic, but one of the factors is an opportunity gap, where there are definitely people that are doing really well in some places, and a lot of people, most people in most places are. are Feeling left out, they are feeling left behind. They're not celebrating the disruption in Silicon Valley. They're kind of angry about it, and you know we need to, you know, kind of create more companies in their own cities that can create more jobs in those cities and create more you know, opportunity and even more hope in those cities. And if we do that, that will be good for those cities. It also I think can be good for the country more broadly.
3: Shark Tank net positive or negative for entrepreneurship in the country
4: I think a net positive it, it's it's really opened people's eyes to the idea of starting a business and and you know probably inspired a lot of people uh, who might not otherwise even thought about it most people when I was growing up I didn't I didn't know what an entrepreneur was until I was a little bit older uh, and so you know that yeah, you know, I think is is a is a is a net positive just in terms of getting people thinking about things and as I said before maybe next time they see a you know, problem, they they turn it into an opportunity. One of the stories I love, it's in the book, is there's a, a mom living in a suburb outside of Indianapolis who five or so years ago was kind of worried about the water quality uh, because in Flint, Michigan, there was this well-publicized crisis about water you know, quality and safety. And she said, I, I've got young kids. I, I want to test my water. I want to make sure that they're drinking safe water. So she called the water companies. I want to test my water. And they said, well, we actually don't do that uh said oh okay and she called uh, some other company that specialized in in and in, uh, in sort of industrial technologies uh, and and said i'd like to get my water tested and they said we'll do that but we're really set up to do that for big companies and it'll cost you thousands of dollars to test your water in your home and so well, that makes no sense so she said, Well, this is crazy. I'm sure there's other people like me who are concerned about their water quality. And she started a company called 120 Water that created a very affordable way for people to in convenient way for people to get their their water tested. And that now and it's scaled. It's even providing some of these testing services to cities, including cities like like San Francisco. That was just somebody who saw a problem and And turn it into an opportunity. And so, hopefully, uh, things like Shark Tank will open people's eyes that they see a problem. Rather than just talking about it or complaining about it, they maybe can do something about it by by, starting a company. And increasingly, because of what's been happening, they have more flexibility to do that anywhere they are as opposed to feeling like, well, I have this idea. I want to do something about it, but I really don't have any ability to do it because I'm you know, living in some part of the country that just is not well known for for startups and innovation and entrepreneurship, and, and that needs to change.
3: Okay, let's talk about the basics on your side of the fence. Obviously, there are legendary venture capital firms in the Silicon Valley. There are well-known ones in New York. Then you read about somebody who's got their own little fund Tell me about the creation of a venture capital firm, whether there's competition amongst you, how the investment works at Revolution, where you get your money to fund your funds.
4: Uh, a couple of parts to that. Uh, the, first, the venture capital as an industry, as a sector, is a relatively modern phenomenon. It's really the last 50 years that it emerged and initially emerged in New York and then in in San Francisco, then in in Boston. That's part of the reason why those cities have been so strong in terms of where venture capitalists have clustered and therefore where entrepreneurs have have clustered. There's three ways people raise money for venture firms. The first is they've made some money from some other thing and start reinvesting. It goes back to this dynamic of, of, uh, of uh, having a successful uh, company leads to people making money from that company, and they, some of them decide to invest in the next generation of entrepreneurs. That's actually how I got started. After you know starting uh, AOL, I started making some investments, and then I, I I ramped it up from there. So that's that's one way. They just have some access to you know to to, to capital. A second way is, and the more common way is, they tap into institutional investors. So. You know, big pension funds, university endowments, they're trying to maximize the return they get for those endowments so they can do more. Programs uh, for their particular university or for their particular hospital, and so they are sort of professional uh, investors that have a whole series of investments. Obviously, they have fairly diversified portfolios, but one part of it, and recently it's become a more important part of it, is investing in these private companies, uh, you know, you know the, the in by terms of in, uh, venture capital in 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 particular. And there are also groups that are what are called fund of funds that also might make raise capital from some large investors and then kind of divvy it out to a group of of smaller funds. So there's different ways you can raise that money. We did something a little bit different uh, for this most recent Rise of the Rest Fund historically, Revolution started initially where it was just money I was investing, so essentially my capital. Then about 10 years ago, we opened it up to institutional investors, and we have a Revolution Growth Fund and Revolution Ventures Fund, investing in companies like DraftKings and Green and Clear and, and dozens of others, and that's with the support of institutional investors who are you know, essentially investing alongside of us. Uh, for this more recent Rise the Rest Fund, we just uh, reached out to individuals. And so we have very prominent, successful entrepreneurs and investors, executives who have joined us as investors in our Rise the Rest Seed Fund, which is investing in these cities all around the country. People like Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz and You know, hedge fund people like Ray Dalio, and private equity people like uh, like uh, Henry Kravis, David Rubenstein. You know, venture investors like Jim Breyer and 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 John Doerr, other entrepreneurs like Sarah Blakely and and uh, Tory Burch, and you know you know Eric Schmidt, uh, you know Mike Milken, a great group of individuals who basically believe in this idea of the. Rise, the rest believe that their entrepreneurs all across the country believe there's a disconnect between the ability for most people in most parts of the country to access venture capital. So our co-investors with us in, in in that particular fund.
3: Do you personally know all those people or does someone on your team reach out? Are you more of a cerebral guy? Or are you very social such that you have relationships with these investors and can just ring them up?
0: Uh,
4: just because of what I've done over a number of decades, I've, I have built a pretty good network. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say, all oh, there are a few uh, people that invested you know, was part of Rise of the Rest who I didn't know personally before, but the vast majority I, I did know personally. And, and many actually were aware of what we're doing and were kind of intrigued with what we're doing and expressed an interest in, in, in being investors alongside of it. So we, we structured something so... Uh, there's uh, the ability for for those people to do it, and it's and it's super helpful as we're going around the country. Uh, that you know some of these prominent successful uh, entrepreneurs and investors, you know, are are essentially backing them. When we make an investment in a company with our Rise Arrest Fund, it's it's uh, it's really the you know, you know these these uh, dozens of other people are essentially investors in your company as well. And I think that's helpful. It gives people uh, some. A little bit more momentum when they're hiring people, that they're, they're more likely to join the company, a little more momentum when they're, they're uh, trying to attract customers or partners, uh, a little more uh, momentum when they're, they're trying to you know, attract follow-on investors. So having that, that network, I think, has been, been, uh, been quite helpful. But just me doing this personally, I don't think we've had nearly the same level of interest or attraction than having several other dozen people you know, kind of joining us on this effort.
3: Let's talk about venture capital in general and revolution in general, as opposed to just the rise of the rest fund. There are different stages of when people invest. Andreessen Horowitz, another venture capital firm, is famous for coming in late. So there's early, tell us about the different stages you might invest in a company.
4: Well, the the, the very earliest stage you know some think of it as sort of seed investment or angel investment where you're raising a you know relatively small amount of money just to kind of get going just to kind of get that idea on the playing field build a you know, initial product or service, and you know, hire a few people just to kind of get going. So that's called the the seed stage, uh, and it varies depending on what the company is. But yeah, you know, seed stage, you know, the investments generally are in the you know few hundred thousand dollar you know range. Sometimes it can be more, sometimes it can be less, but generally that's sort of the the range that people are talking about. And then there's sort of the the venture stage, which is the company is more developed and and you know, the, the team is is more assembled and uh, there's a little bit more clarity regarding uh, product market fit things like that. So there's still risk associated with it. It's still, it's still a fledgling you know, company, uh, but at that point. Uh, the the company and, and the entrepreneurs back in the company really feel like they need to raise more capital. Usually, it's a few million dollars. And that's a whole other group of, of, of venture firms that specialize at that stage. And then, as you said, there's a later stage, which people think of as the growth stage, uh, where the company really has you know kind of got some traction. It's kind of a, a real business. It still needs more capital to expand. It's still not yet profitable, but, but it, you know, it's clear that there really is an idea there. And that's the growth stage, and generally people are raising tens of millions of dollars in in the in the growth stage, and in, in more recently, sometimes a lot more. People, you know, some of the companies uh, more recently have delayed going public and been able to raise, you know, very large kind of private, you know, late stage rounds before they they go public. So the way to think about it is it, you know, kind of. Whether you're at the very early stage where you need some of that initial seed capital to just get going or you're at the venture stage where you have a little bit more traction but, but do need some some capital and, and also some expertise to help you build the company. Or at the somewhat later stage where you really do see a big opportunity and, and you really want to kind of put the foot on the accelerator and, and need the additional capital either to hire more people or to you know, spend more on marketing or whatever, whatever the, you know, the focus uh, might be.
3: And does Revolution participate at all those different levels, whether it be with different funds?
4: Yeah, we do. We do, and then other firms do. There's some that just focus on one stage, but we we really want to be able to back entrepreneurs at kind of every stage of the of the journeys. And so we have you know, dedicated teams focused on that early seed stage. Another dedicated team focused on the venture stage, and a third team focused on the on the growth stage.
3: Okay, so you go into one of these cities and you start with X number of companies who would like to gain the $100,000 and then you winnow it down and then you ultimately award one company. What are you seeing there? Are you seeing a lot of, you're an expert, are you seeing a lot of viable ideas or are you seeing only a couple? What is out there in the marketplace?
4: No, we're seeing a lot of ideas. Not, of course, a lot of them are not great ideas. <laughs> you, you get a mix, but by the time we, our team, kind of talks to people and and filters it from the initial called hundred in each city to the. The best ten, but well, you know the ten are are always pretty pretty interesting, pretty compelling in, in some way or fashion. But one of the things that 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 we've learned is while the idea is important, obviously it, it's sort of the core of what you're building. Is you, know, you need to understand what exactly you know is the is the goal, what is the vision, what kind of what what mountain are you trying to climb, what what uh, you know what you know, what battle are you trying to fight? So it starts with that the vision or it starts with the idea. Uh, you quickly realize that. It sort of, and there's a Thomas Edison quote from a century ago, vision without any, you know, execution is hallucination. You quickly recognize it's how do you take that idea and, and really scale it, which gets back to some of the things we talked about before, that what, what is the team dynamic and how does that really allow you to, to scale that? So, we're, when we're t- talking to entrepreneurs, whether it be in these pitch competitions or just kind of one-on-one, we want to understand the idea. We also understand want to understand the team that's going to turn that into to a, real, a real business. Uh, and then you also need to have some evidence, particularly as you're looking at these some of the later stage investments, that there it really has competitive advantage. What some people think of as competitive moats or something that is unique about what you're you're doing, and also want to understand what some of the partnerships are that are allowing you to, to scale the business. So there there are a number of different different factors, but certainly it starts with trying to understand what what that big idea is, and then what's the what's the dynamic of the team that's going to execute against that idea and turn it into a real business.
3: Now, uh, there are these accelerators and one is Techstars and Techstars Music started up a few years ago and they choose like 10 companies and they come in and they want advisors. And I went in to advise and just about all these people were delusional. They did <laughs> not have an understanding of the landscape. They had a slight understanding of what was going on, but it wasn't a practical understanding. And there were one or two that I thought were could possibly be viable. And then ultimately none is really broken through on any big level. There's a number of questions here. One, you know, to what degree do people know the landscape and are sophisticated maybe? And then there's timing. There's a lot of investment capital in venture capital, uh, in the music business, 20, 25 years ago, most people lost all their money. As I sit here right now, I don't see a ton of opportunity. So, what is the landscape? Do is it about choosing the right vertical? Is it about having expertise in some area that you're matching with the vertical or understanding that vertical? What can you? I know that there are no s- strict rules, but give us some insight.
4: Well, I think it's evolving. I think it's interesting. Interesting way you frame the question because in in Silicon Valley there's sort of this um, truism that the biggest disruptors often go into a new industry knowing nothing about it. And as a result, they see things that people in the industry don't see, have insights in terms of different products or services, or just different way of, of, of doing things. And as a result, having that fresh perspective, having that almost naive perspective, and asking sort of basic questions kind of questions and looking for you know, kind of emerging opportunities they're able to build some some very significant companies and there are many examples of that that PayPal which 20 years ago was one of the first really successful you know you know digital payment companies Elon Musk and, and others were were, uh, were were part of that none of the team really understood the the financial service industry or the credit card industry and they were able to do some things because of that naivete that allowed them to 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 uh, to be successful. More recently, you know, 10, 15 years ago, a similar dynamic happened with Airbnb. You know, the founders there didn't really understand the hotel industry, the hospitality industry. So they came up with what most people thought was sort of a crazy idea, uh, but it turned out to be a great idea. So there's definitely that thread, that that stream where those fresh perspectives are, are important. Those fresh insights are important and can lead to great entrepreneurial success stories. But there's also another dynamic, and this, I think, is becoming increasingly important. It goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, that in industries, whether you're talking about the music industry or the healthcare industry or the the agriculture industry or the sports industry, there, there are many industries where in order to be successful, you have to go beyond having that insight and actually be able to build partnerships to be, you know, be able to get real scale. Uh, otherwise, you don't really have uh, much success. Going back to the example I mentioned in, in, in healthcare, if you built really cool software, but it, you couldn't get hospitals to, to, to partner with you, what's the point? And so, increasingly, you need to have the the balance, the blend of some of that fresh perspective, but also have some real expertise in, in, in the industry. That's probably why in terms of tech stars, because you have expertise in the industry, they said, let's bring some people together that can help these entrepreneurs and complement some of the perspectives they might bring by bringing some of the real world insights that come from that, uh, that, that industry. I think that balancing act is going to become much more important in the next, you know, 10 or 20 years. And, and, Occasionally, there'll still be companies that launch where the people within the company know nothing about the industry they're trying to disrupt. But more often, at least some members on the team will bring that perspective, bring that the credibility that comes with that, that will result in some of those companies being much more successful because they have on their teams or on their boards or in their investor groups or somewhere in their in their network, uh, some of the people that really are able to to take that idea and scale it uh, in in part by building partnerships with people in the industry that will ask some of the basic questions uh, that anybody in the industry would, would know to ask.
3: To what degree do you encounter headstrong entrepreneurs? Here's an analogy between the music business. You find someone who says, I want to be successful. And if you try to give them any advice, say, no, 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 I got to do it my own way. And you end up rolling your eyes. You encounter that in your uh, ventures, talking sure. to companies.
4: Sure, and it's a balancing act. We want entrepreneurs who are, you know, confident and passionate, and and you know have strong convictions and and a strong you know perspective on how the world's going to change, how the market's going to change, why that's going to create opportunities, and. And are you know, evangelists for their idea and can recruit other people to their team and and so forth. So you definitely want that that you know that confidence. But I do think it's helpful to to balance that with at least a little bit of of humility, a little bit of listening, a little bit of maybe I don't have all the answers. And and but sure, we we we've, we've backed a whole mix of entrepreneurs over the over the years and and uh, find the ones that are you know the, at least the best fit for us. And you know usually the most successful are the ones that are you know have pretty strong views but also recognize that there's you know, value to, to listening and engaging with, uh, with others, and, and, and that helps them refine their ideas. Ultimately, they can be, be more successful because of that, uh, that, that team dynamic.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list.
1: There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and an abundance of research, conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava Duvernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
5: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to math and magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Now, if I win and I get $100,000, do you wave and take the bus off and that's the last they ever hear of you? Or how involved are you in the company you invest in?
4: No, well, first of all, I should say we started these bus tours, as uh, we talked about earlier, eight years ago. We've done uh, eight bus tours and, and visited over 40 cities and done over 40 is pitch competitions uh, but I said earlier, we've also uh, invested in about 200 companies in 100 cities. So most of our investments are in companies we did not meet uh, via bus tours and most of our investments in cities that we haven't visited on our bus tours. So initially, it was about the bus tours and the pitch competitions. But as we saw more and more opportunity, we kept extending this, this network. We now have over 300 regional venture firms we, we co-invest with. Uh, that has been a, a source of, of more opportunities. But in answer to your question, yeah, I do get involved with the companies. I, I get more involved with the companies at the later stage than I do at the earlier stage, but we have a whole team here uh, that's focused specifically on working with the, the companies at the earlier stage. We host you know, regular summits, what we call Rise the Rest summits, bringing the entrepreneurs together that we back, bringing the investors we've co-invested with back, bringing the community, startup community leaders in different cities all together to, to learn from each other. So I'm, I'm certainly actively involved in this. I'm working as hard as I was when I was running AOL 20 plus years ago, and it's, it's because it's a lot of fun.
3: So, you know, obviously these cities you go to, they, uh, you're there with the bus, there's other people who've you know combed through the companies, but the- Ever just knock on your door, and for those who have knocked on your door, have any of them been good and you've invested in them?
4: Yeah, a bunch have. One in particular I read about in the book is entrepreneur Jonathan Webb, who just showed up at our office here in Washington D.C. <laughs> you know, kept kept pestering the people to you know get a meeting. You know, he finally got a meeting. Uh, and initially, you know, we thought what he had in mind was you know a little, a little crazy. But the more we listened to him, the more we became convinced it was actually a pretty interesting idea, and that's gone on to. You know, create a company in Eastern Kentucky called App Harvest uh, that uh, went from an idea on a napkin, and we provided some of the initial, you know, I think initial hundred thousand dollars of capital to get that idea going. They've now raised a couple hundred million dollars and and have scaled that to. It's it's about it's in the ag tech sector, agriculture technology sector. They've now built the largest indoor greenhouse in America, and they built it in Eastern Kentucky, outside of uh, of Lexington. Uh, they, they they picked that site in part because seventy percent of the U.S. population is within a twenty four hour drive, so the you know fruits and vegetables can get to market quickly. They designed it so it uses ninety percent less water, so it's much more sustainable, good for the, uh, the 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 climate, and did it specifically there because that area is known as Appalachia Coal Country, which for decades has been in, in decline, We've really seen some real challenges as the coal industry you know, largely uh, you know, disappeared. Uh, and so Jonathan had this idea for creating a company uh, that can you know, could scale, but also creating jobs in in a community that has felt you know kind of left 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 behind. And so that was one example of somebody who just kind of knocked on our door, heard about what we were doing, and and wanted to be part of it. And I, as I travel around, I spend a good bit of time, obviously not doing the pandemic, but in the last you know year year and a half, spent a good bit of time traveling around the. The country meeting people and, you know, always I, you know, people come up to me with ideas and, uh, you know, sometimes they're, they're really interesting and we have follow on meetings. Sometimes they're less interesting and, and I, I try to be polite in, in figuring out a way to, 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 to pass. But, you know, it's one of the great things about uh, entrepreneurship is, is people, Having these ideas, these sparks of of imagination, and then wanting to turn them into something. And so, after many years, those early years of AOL, when we just got started, I was still in my twenties. You know, I would you know go up to people at conferences and start pitching my idea. You know, most people ignored me. A few people listened, and that sometimes led to some partnerships that ended up being you know very helpful to us. And so, having lived through that, I recognize I have a you know an opportunity and some degree of responsibility to kind of help this next generation of entrepreneurs i'm always open to getting pitched by anybody
3: okay this comes down to the money with money comes power what kind of deals do these entrepreneurs get when you invest money in uh and how heavily is it negotiated there's no such thing as a standard deal but are there general splits and things like that
4: No, they vary pretty uh, dramatically, and it obviously depends on what we're going back to before, talking about the stages, the seed stage, the venture stage, the the growth stage. It it, it varies. On the earliest stage, the seed stage, our strategy there with, with Rise to Rest has been to partner with other f- venture firms that are located in these cities all across the country. So they really take the lead in setting the terms of the deal, valuation and things like that. And then we're participating in, in, in those rounds and then connecting the people we're working with together in the ways I, I talked about uh, before. On the later stage funds like you know, Revolution Ventures and, and Revolution Growth, though, there we we do lead the round. We do get more involved, including you know, taking board seats of the companies we back. So we really can help them in terms of scaling those those businesses. Uh, and those tend to be, be more negotiated based on kind of what the stat, status of the business is, what the you know comparable companies, what valuations are of comparable companies, uh, particularly in the public uh, markets. Uh, so it, it's it's a little more complicated to get to the kind of a, a win-win you know deal where where it makes sense for for us as investors and also makes sense for the companies.
3: Are entrepreneurs born or are they built?
4: Uh, a little bit of both. You know, I think uh, early on, I think the general view was they're probably born, but I've had, uh, and I was one that, that I think uh, in retrospect, I was kind of born an entrepreneur, even if I didn't know what it was at the time. Uh, but I've also had the experience of meeting lots of people who've had great success and and kind of came to it later in life. And so, yeah, you know, it was not something they really were you know, familiar with or not a path they were pursuing, but uh, they stumbled into some opportunity that where they were able to turn into a you know, company including some of the most you know celebrated you know success stories in the last you know half century. Uh, things like uh, McDonald's, Ray Kroc basically was you know w- took the idea of McDonald's. He was um, selling milkshake mixers you know be- at, to different you know restaurants, and there's you know a couple of McDonald brothers somewhere in Southern California were started ordering a lot of his mixers, and he said, "Huh, why are they ordering so many of my mixers?" And so visited them and saw what was sen- essentially the first you know, or one of the first fast food restaurant concepts, and that's why they were ordering so many of them because they were they were designed the restaurant to, to to basically do high volumes and got more intrigued and so it eventually bought the you know that you know the, the brand and, and and sort of the some of the core ideas and and turned that into mcdonald's and he was in his 50s when he did that sam walton started a little store in bentonville arkansas you know uh, and and uh, just with the idea of of providing you know Broader selection to people, better prices, and so forth. And that little idea in Bentville is now Walmart, which is one of the largest companies in in the world. So, you know, some I think are born with that sort of entrepreneurial creativity, builder, you know, new ideas, you know, start businesses streak. Uh, but there are also many who end up uh, seeing something that they just find, uh, you know, fascinating. And decide to pursue it as a, as a, as a business opportunity, as a, as a startup, even if they're you know, quite a bit older and if they never really saw themselves as, as entrepreneurs.
3: Now, I realize every investment has a different amount of capital involved, but generally speaking, as a VC, what kind of hit-to-shit ratio are you looking for, your success ratio?
4: Well, it again depends on the stage. The earlier you're investing, when it's more of the in the idea stage, there's going to be you know more misses than in the later stage where the company is a little bit more you know more developed. Uh, you know, we try to minimize what's in, in the industry called the loss ratio, <laughs> where where you basically uh, you know strike out, uh, and it's easier to do that with the later stage investments because there's more to you know diligence. They're generally you know pretty you know, significant companies. We back the company. Started in the Washington, D.C. area uh, almost 15 years ago called Sweet Green, which was a fast, casual restaurant you know, concept. And initially it was just one place and there was a few places and then they started expanding. And so we invested in that to help them expand to other regions. And that's gone on to, you know, you know they're building now a pretty significant business. And now it's a public you know, company with a you know couple billion dollar valuation. Uh, and they were able to use that capital to, to scale up. We always knew when we invested in them that it would be successful. We just didn't know how, how success would be, how, how big it might be. Uh, but certainly on the earlier stage, there's more risk. But by co-investing with other people, uh, we're able to you know, kind of hedge some of that risk. But for sure, uh, you're, you're always going to have, um, as you say, in the, it's like in the you know, music business or the movie business, some are going to work and some are not going to work. And, and you just try to maximize the numbers of the ones that are working and minimize the ones that, that don't work.
3: How many people work at Revolution and how do they get their jobs and what do they do?
4: It's a mix of things. Overall, I think it's about 75 people now, and some of them are focused on each of these funds I mentioned. Some are focused on sort of broader corporate functions, finance, legal, communications, policy, you know, things like that. Um, and they, you know, they get their jobs, like anything, you know, sort of, you know, they, they, we're looking for great people and always, uh, uh, on the hunt. And sometimes we know somebody because they worked together on some company or on, at some other, you know, venture fund or had some other role. Uh, and sometimes they just surface through a, you know, kind of a more traditional, uh, you know, kind of search process. Uh, but you know, we have, we've been able to build a, build a great team.
3: Okay. Let's go a little into the personal stuff. You grew up in Hawaii. What do I know? Even at this late date, living in Los Angeles, we're three hours behind, and you frequently an afterthought. And then elections, national elections—they're decided, except for the last major one, where there a lot of uh, mail-in votes that have to be counted. Were decided before we even, you know, the polls even closed in California. So, growing up in Hawaii, on some level, that's all you knew. But what was it like?
4: Well, it was all I knew, and, I, and most of it I did like. It's a great place to to, to grow up, and, uh, and for a whole host of reasons. But you're right; it, it, I did feel a little bit like I was, you know, out of the swing of things, a little bit off the beaten track, uh, even when I was growing up. And the television shows, the sitcoms, everything would, would run on in Hawaii a week after they ran on the mainland. Basically, the tapes would get shipped over or flown over. <laughs> we would watch them a week later. So, you know, thankfully back then people weren't using the internet or, or lots of phone calls because there'd been a big spoiler, you know, effect. Cause the reality is most people in the country already knew what was going to happen before we, we did. Uh, and so that was, that was a little bit, uh, You know, it was a little bit strange. And I also, and I write about some of this in the book, growing up in Hawaii, it was interesting to see how the economy was evolving because for most of the previous century, it basically had been around agriculture, growing pineapples, growing sugar. That was really the core industry of Hawaii. And then, you know, competition, global competition from other countries really, you know, decimated that industry. And they had to pivot and thankfully were able to pivot uh, from and move out of you know, essentially agriculture and into tourism. And particularly when the Boeing business jet came along in the, I think it was the early 1970s, you know, that really accelerated the amount of you know people visiting Hawaii and, you know increased the number of hotels being built and other other things to to, to cater to the you, know, the you know the tourism industry and it was able to kind of reposition itself uh and benefit from uh from 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 tourism. So you know, there were lots of benefits in in uh, in growing up there, and uh, I went to a, a school that, uh, uh, I, uh, that I lived near, and it was it was fun to you know go to that school and actually you know in the it's a small world department. One of the people I met in high school was President Obama. I was a senior when he was a freshman, so we didn't have <laughs> classes together, but we did. I do remember playing basketball with him a couple of times, and I do remind people when I'm speaking to to younger folks that always be nice to everybody because you never know who might be president of the united states controlling like the cia and the irs and all these other 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 things so uh, it was kind of uh, kind of interesting
3: okay basketball is mentioned multiple times in your book as is your competition with your brother how how dedicated to basketball were you how good were you and to what degree did your competition with your brother ultimately inform and enhance your career efforts
4: Oh well, I think it's mixed. I was an average basketball player I wasn't a, wasn't definitely not a superstar but but enjoyed it uh, in terms of my brother, he was a really good tennis player, so that probably led me to basketball. You know, wanting to do something a little different than what my brother was doing. And then he—he—he—he uh, he, he was definitely the one, and you know, it was a year older, and definitely was the one who was getting straight A's. I was—I was not getting straight A's. Maybe that was another way I was going to differentiate him, if it—you know—wasn't necessarily, you know, something my parents were were loving. Uh, And then he he ended up going to college at at Princeton and and, uh, ended up being a Rhodes Scholar, so really quite successful. And then uh, went on to, to you know, be part of an investment banking firm that was one of the storied firms in Silicon Valley. A firm called Hamburg and Quist, it took companies like Apple Public and Genentech Public, and he was a close advisor to people like uh, like Steve Jobs. Uh, and the fact that he was focused more on the on the, the financial side of things, investment banking side of things, and I was focused more on the, the entrepreneurial side of things. That was a nice kind of balance that he could help me, and and I could I could help him. Sadly, he passed away over two decades ago from brain cancer. He he was you know in his early 40s, had a young family and it just was a, a you know, wake-up call that none of us can really control our, our destiny control our, our future. He was uh, kind of on the top of his game and then you know suddenly he finds out he has uh, you know, brain cancer 14 months later he passes away. So that was a a, 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 a just a reminder of the fragility of life and and uh, for me and everybody in my family uh, a reminder not to take anything for granted.
3: Okay, you end up going to school at Williams in western Massachusetts. Was that culture shock or had your father had gone to Williams, but had you spent enough time on the mainland or did you feel like a fish out of water at Williams?
4: Uh, I had not spent much time on the mainland, mostly in, in, uh, in Hawaii. Uh, uh, I didn't necessarily feel like a fish out of water. I certainly had to adjust to a rather sh- sudden Shift in terms of seasons because you know there's of course no snow in Hawaii and or there's a little bit of snow on top of one mountain but essentially no snow uh, and there was quite a bit of snow in, in, in Massachusetts as as you know uh, so there's some some adjustments like that but I, I really enjoyed it it was a it was a you know an interesting place to be and in, in full disclosure at that point in time both high school and college. My passion was not around uh, technology or things like the Internet. It actually was the music business. Uh, in high school, I did a number of things that were related to writing, you know, kind of concert reviews and taking pictures and and, uh, and uh, uh, worked with a bunch of people then, did a lot of interviews when I was a kid, you know, Aerosmith and Wolf Pen Jack, other bands that were coming through you know, town. And then when I was in college, part of the, my little side hustle was promoting some you know, some concerts, so I was initially focused on the music business. A couple of things happened that shifted my focus. The main one was I I started you know in in the late seventies uh, when I was still in you know, in college, getting really fascinated with the idea of what we now think of as the internet. I remember reading a book by a futurist Alvin Toffler when I was a, a senior uh, in nineteen seventy nine, uh, and the book was called The Third Wave, and he was talking about This next wave was going to be around digital technologies, and you know the first wave was agriculture, second wave was industrial revolution, third wave was going to be a digital revolution, and and I was smitten with that idea. So that was part of what led me onto a different path. But also, I had some stumbles in the in the music business because my strategy, a little like venture capital, was to back bands when I heard their albums and thought they could be hits and booked them for dates like six or nine months later with the idea that, you know, obviously sometimes they get it wrong and nobody would come to the concert. But if I got it right, I would lock in a band at a pretty good price. And that seemed like a pretty, you know, pretty clever idea to me. But what I didn't realize is, is often you were wrong and nobody would show up. But when you were right and you were just a promoting college concerts in, in, in New England and had no clout, the bands that were successful would cancel on you. And I had two examples of this I booked both meat uh, meatloaf, I think for one of their first dates and cheap trick, uh, you know, for one of their early dates, for five hundred dollars each for you know, for a concert that were like six months down the road, both of them cancel on me. I think a cheap trick. was got a deal with uh, or offer to be on Don Kirshner's rock concert or something like that. So I said, okay, this is not working for me. You know, if, if, if I guess wrong, nobody comes. If I guess right, they cancel on me. I got to move on. And thankfully, was able to pivot to the pivot to the internet.
3: There are stories of you being an entrepreneur in college, selling different things, are those true?
4: Yeah, yeah, I was definitely uh had all kinds of different, you know, side hustles. Some of it was concert promotions, some of it was <laughs> one one business we had uh, was Called Williams Fruit Baskets, and the the pitch was when to, to parents because we realized the parents had the money, the kid didn't really have the money. That when it was coming time for like to study for exams at the end of the semester, we'd send these uh, letters to parents saying, "You know, don't you want your child to to eat healthy when when <laughs> they're studying for exams? Uh, why don't you order a fruit basket and we will we will handpick the fruit and deliver it to your your student just when they're in this uh, this challenging period and that business did, did pretty well we also had some other you know, bus businesses things like that so again yeah again none of them were big successes but I enjoyed starting them and I got learned a little bit from each of them
3: well so if I was on campus not that many people go to Williams with say oh yeah that's the guy who starts the businesses that's the guy who does that
4: yeah well, that was me that was me <laughs> and I, and I, and the really sad part is at one point a professor pulled me aside I think it was a junior at the time. And said, uh, essentially, they realized that I was spending less time uh, in class doing the work I should have been doing and more time on these businesses on the side. And said, uh, it sat me down and said, you know, Steve, uh, you know, we know you're like super passionate about some of these ideas, but you know, college is kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You're only here for four years, and you have an opportunity to learn things and meet people and, and really kind of expand your mind and so forth. So, it's it, it really encourage you to spend a little less time on those business things, which you can always do later, and more time on, on the you know, the, the college things. And, of course, I recognized he was right, but at that point, I was, you know, too far into my other things. So, I, I did okay in college, but uh, nobody, you know, thought I was going to, you know, kind of I was going to you know, win any awards?
3: Your father was a lawyer. you grew up in a somewhat comfortable uh, upbringing. Were you forming these businesses to make money or to have the experience of building a business?
4: Yeah, I think both. I, and I, 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 Dad was uh, a lawyer, and, and my mom a teacher, as you said, and you know, so we lived a you know comfortable kind of. Upper middle class, you know, kind of life. Um, and so I never had to worry about uh, kind of some of the basic things a lot of people have to worry about. But my parents also really believed in, in you know, people being independent and, and resilient. And so got a little bit of allowance, but not much, and had to do a lot of chores for it. And you know, if you really wanted to, you know, buy something, you need to figure out some way to make some money. So it was not, you know, kind of here's, here's our credit card, uh, you know, you know. I guess back then credit cards were not even a thing. But, but uh, you know, you, you, you want to buy something, you know, you know, we'll pay for it. That was, that was not the, the, the ethos. It was more of a, uh, we'll give you a little bit of money if you do a bunch of chores. Uh, and but if you really wanted you know, you have any real flexibility to do anything much, you know, you have to go get a job. And whether that sometimes it was just getting jobs, you know, basic jobs and, and doing different things uh, over the years. And, and sometimes it was starting things, you know, to, to also have a path to, you know, make some make a little extra money. But as you said, also, there was something about the idea of starting the businesses that that also was kind of intriguing to me. So, you know, for me, it was sort of a, a twofer.
3: When I was going to college a few years ahead of you, uh, Williams was not co-ed. And I said, no way. What was the status of uh, men and women when you went to Williams?
4: It had shifted a few years before, not too many years, but just a few years before. I was there in 76 through 80. uh, What by then was co-ed. It was still uh, majority men, but it was was definitely co-ed.
3: Okay, and what kind of kid were you there? You have a million friends. Were you ostracized? Were you popular? Unpopular?
4: Sort of in the middle. I, I was involved in a bunch of different things, including uh, co-chairing the entertainment committee that was booking concerts to come to the college. Worked with the radio station, and and uh, and so had some and had some of the side businesses that I that I mentioned. Um, So I was involved in a bunch of different, different things, uh, but uh, I would say I was sort of kind of middle of the pack in terms.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
1: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great.
0: Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list.
1: Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
5: Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Of, of uh, you know, friend groups and things like that.
3: So you applied to get an MBA and you didn't get in it anywhere. Were you just going through the motions or did you really want to get an MBA? And how did you feel when you didn't get it?
4: Yeah, it was kind of a bummer. Which is, you know, of course, it's been made for a fun story since because uh, uh, the two schools I applied to, Harvard and and, and Stanford. Both rejected me, and I've spoken on their campuses a bunch of times. I'm always quick to remind them (laughs) (laughs) of of what—in fact, one time I I came out with another book about six years ago called The The Third Wave. And I was uh, in Boston going to some television station to film something and drove by the Harvard Business School campus. And I said, stop, stop, stop. And we we got out, and uh, I did a little uh, quick—I think it was a Facebook Live thing or something— uh, some live video, uh, basically wandering around the campus, you know, to find the admissions office to ask why they had turned me down, whatever, a number of 30-plus years ago. So, it was kind of uh, you know, you know, fun. So, I answered the question, I was, I was not sure what I was going to do at that and thought that was a you know, good path to at least pursue. And uh, at the time, you know, most of the business schools didn't really accept that many kids right out of school. They wanted to get some few years of work experience first. So, I, I didn't really have a high expectation that I'd get in, but figured if I did, that at least would be an option I would consider. Meanwhile, I was interviewing for you know, a bunch of other jobs in, in New York and other member of interview with HBO and some ad agencies and, and so forth, just trying to figure out what, what I was going to do. At the time, I really knew I wanted to build a company like an AOL. I, I knew it even back in 1980 when I was graduating that I believed the idea of the Internet was a big idea, and I wanted to figure out some way to pursue that path. But uh, when I was graduating, since the Internet was still mostly a research technology, it was still limited to government agencies and educational institutions. Consumers and businesses weren't able to use the Internet when I was you know, graduating from college. Um, you know, there, there really wasn't an Internet industry I could you know, enter, an you know, inter- Internet company I could, could join and back then, when I was graduating college, venture capitalists, you know, weren't backing twenty-one-year-old kids coming out of college. They were, they were, they were, you know, looking for more seasoned people with more experience. And so that's what led me on the path of working for some, you know, big companies, Procter & Gamble, in Cincinnati. You know, you know, well, before Pizza you Hut, is-
3: before you get there, so you talk about reading the Toffler book and having an inspiration. Did you learn anything about that in college? Or was it all self education? And did anything you learned in college help you as you went down the line, or was it just a contained experience?
4: Uh, Well, I'd say it's a complicated question. I'd break it into a couple of parts. Uh, The interest in essentially internet technology uh, was inspired in part by the Toffler book, but even before I read the Toffler book, I was spending a lot of time doing my own research in, in the college library, reading all kinds of newspapers, magazines, because back then in the late 70s, there were some of these new technologies that were being trialed, things like uh, Minitel in France and Prestel in the UK and concept like video text and teletext and interactive TV. Warner Amex had a, a system called Cube and, and being tested in Cincinnati, Ohio, and Columbus, Ohio. So there are a bunch of things that were bubbling even in the late '70s that I found really intriguing. That in retrospect were kind of the really early days, first experiments, and what then ultimately led to you know the internet. Uh, so I was learning a lot, but it was not in, a, in necessarily classes I was taking that you know, related to to uh, you know things that I I was focused on then. But I would say, and this is true, I think, for any uh, kind of liberal arts education, I think the value, at least the value to me, was learning a little bit about a lot of things, which gives you a broader perspective on on life and a broader perspective on the world, learning how to aggregate and synthesize information and come up with conclusions, points of view, learn how to communicate those conclusions. Uh, so I think there are a bunch of things that that did end up serving me well, even if it, the, the any the specific course material, uh, you know, wasn't one specific things you could connect to you know, what I ended up you know later doing. So I'm I, I'm actually bullish on the value of a liberal arts education, uh, while at the same time you know, recognizing that that uh, you know entrepreneurs will end up being passionate about a particular idea and. Likely will pursue that idea in a lot of different ways, and 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 many of them are uncoupled from what they might learn and and, and while they're in in college. Although I also would say it's changed quite a bit. I, I've I have visited. Uh, dozens and dozens of universities over the years, including related to our work with Rise and Rest, and even some in the last month uh, since the Rise and Rest book came out. And it's amazing to see how many universities really are leaning into entrepreneurship. And in Phoenix, a couple of weeks ago, is at Arizona State University. They have a whole dorm focused on entrepreneurship and makers and builders and so forth. So there's a lot more happening on campuses now than were when, when I was there or you were there in the in the in the in the 70s. Uh, so I'd say you know I did learn a lot, kind of self-taught around the, the ideas of, uh, that ultimately for me became, you know, kind of AOL and, and more broadly, you know, the internet. And do think looking back that I benefited, you know, considerably from that, that kind of broad liberal arts education.
3: So you got rejected by PNG, but you showed up and they gave you a job.
4: Yeah, I, I'm I, this line of questioning, Bob. It's really uh, kind of, it's kind of making a little PTSD for me here. Yes, yes. I, every every school I rec- uh, in business school I applied to reject me, and yes, the companies I really wanted to work for, not just P and G but HBO and many others, you know, rejected me. So thank you for pointing out that out. For no, the no, world. no. But, well, but, but I kept fighting, and I kept fighting, and and uh, I think uh, the, the second part of that P and G story, uh, as you know, was I they did reject me. Uh, I just didn't, they did an interview on campus and yeah, they just, you know, weren't interested in a follow on interview, but I really was interested in P&G. There's something about that company and their training program for marketing people that I thought would be, be really a really good fit for me. So I basically appealed their decision and wrote to them and said, I'm sorry. I don't remember exactly what it was, but something like, I'm sorry that interview did go so well. I really, you know, I think P&G would be a good fit. Here's two or three reasons why I think it'd be a good fit. Please give me a, another chance. I'd like to have a you know a, a second you know bite at the apple, if you will. Um, and so they said, okay, well, if you'll, you know, get to New York city, you know, in a couple of weeks, um, on thus and such a day, uh, that we'll have somebody who will meet you. And I think they are just kind of testing me What I, it was a little bit of a hassle. I had to, you know, kind of take the. You know the the bus to the city, and figure out some way to you know kind of get there. And and uh, it was the middle of winter, so it wasn't exactly the easiest time to be getting around. And the fact that I just showed up, I think I, think I passed the, the the persistence test and the passion test. Uh, and that was a better interview. So ultimately, I did end up you know getting that job and and moving to to Cincinnati.
3: Well, you talk about the PTSD. I guess the reason I'm asking these questions is not to point out the bumps in the road, but to ask how did you maintain your optimism?
4: Well, I understand that, and and I appreciate that. The the um, I don't know. This is this is part of uh, the entrepreneurial journey. You know, you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of setbacks, even the early days of AOL we struggled a couple times we had to go through layoffs many people thought uh, we wouldn't survive you know the the company would just kind of hit the wall uh, we had many you know many challenges there i remember at one point we had a deal with apple and worked on for months and months and months and to license their brand name They create something called apple Inc. personal edition then they decided to not long after we launched, to cancel it and and uh, you know, tear up our contract, and a lot of people then thought you know the company would would hit the wall. We had all kinds of you know challenges, and that that is the entrepreneurial journey. There are very few overnight successes. Most of them are kind of a slog, and eventually. You know, things kind of, you know, if you stick with it, things, you know, kind of turn out. So I think that gave me that if you believe it's a, you know, idea worth fighting for, a business worth, you know, building, that, you know, that you keep, keep fighting, you keep persisting. And I think some of that may have been, you know, kind of some of those early days, maybe even some of those rejections as you noticed, you know, noted and, you know, continuing to fight to, you know, get what I thought was, was, at least for me, the right, right next, you know, step. I think you just learned the importance of, of, uh, of persistence and you know, and keep fighting. Even when, frankly, when I started the the, uh, the AOL and we you know struggled to raise capital in those early days, and most people did not believe the internet would ever be a mainstream phenomenon. I know it seems crazy now, but most people would say things to me like, "Well, do you really think people are going to buy something called a personal computer and and then sit down in front of a keyboard to type a message to somebody?" when they can just pick up the phone and call somebody. That feels like a crazy idea. I so, said, no, I actually do think that that's gonna happen. Uh, and, and others, you know, a few years later, it was when things around home shopping and electronic commerce started developing, people said say, well, do you really think that average people, like normal people, or be comfortable buying a product from somebody they don't even know, and and do you actually think they'll be comfortable with this internet thing to type their credit card in that somebody might, some hacker might steal. I said, yeah, oh yeah, I think I think people will be interested in that. So there was a lot of skepticism, and it, it really was a decade of, of struggle before finally you know we we broke through. And when we first started Rise of the Rest ten years ago, it was a little bit deja vu all over again. When I started talking about the idea of backing entrepreneurs all around the country, what would happen with the rising cities, how we could slow the brain drain of people leaving, boomerang people back, more capital, more people, more places, you know, things we talked about earlier. Most people were skeptical. Most people kind of didn't necessarily roll their eyes, but they thought it was a, 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 a mission that likely was going to end up unsuccessful. And, you know, it's been great to see the progress we made in the last decade and, and particularly the, the momentum in the last you know couple of years, which ultimately led me to, to write the book. So, I, I, to me, it is around... You know, persistence, but I don't think it's unique to me. Most of the, the entrepreneurs I've known who ended up being successful have had to deal with, you know, setbacks, but they just keep fighting.
3: Okay, let's bring it up to today. Since you've been a seer technologically in the past, what is your view on the metaverse and Facebook's pivot to the metaverse?
4: Well, I'm a believer in the metaverse. We actually launched one of the first metaverse products in the late 1980s. We did a partnership with Lucasfilm to create essentially a virtual world with avatars and this was very rudimentary technology. It actually was a Commodore 64 computer with a 300 baud modem, but essentially was an early version of the the metaverse. And so I've always believed in that idea uh, with gaming. I think some of the more recent applications in terms of uh, kind of uh, for business use, in terms of creating much more immersive experiences uh, for people, including things like, you know, video conferencing really feels like you're, you know, sitting with somebody and it's really like a real room. All those things, I think, hold, hold a lot of uh, you know, potential. But these things tend to take a while before they really are ready for prime time. And I think uh, what Facebook now, you know, meta is, is you know, struggling with is, They've been making very, very significant investments—you know, ten billion plus a year—in these metaverse technologies. They are a little slower to to take off than they they thought. Meanwhile, they're seeing some challenges in their their core business, and so they likely will, you know, kind of you know pull back at least a little bit on some of their 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 efforts. So they probably are right in the long run that it's a, an important new platform, but they might have gotten a little ahead of themselves in terms of the pace at which they were pursuing that.
3: The timing is certainly key. We certainly saw that with music being the canary in the coal mine for digital disruption, as I say, 20 odd years ago. But if we look forward within our lifetimes, will the public at large, never 100%, 75 80% participate in the metaverse or is augmented reality more the thing? What's your prediction there?
4: Well, I think I think metaverse is one of these concepts, like kind of like Web three, which is a basket of ideas, and so you have to kind of parse it a little bit. I think I think uh, augmented reality, virtual reality are, are are parts of the you know the technology suite that make things like a metaverse possible and other things like that. And I do think they'll get broader adoption. I uh, in addition to running. Uh, Revolution the Investment Company. I'm currently the chair of the Smithsonian Institution. We have the twenty museums in Washington, DC and research operations around the around the, the world. And a big focus there is how do you to not just assume people are going to come to D.C. to visit our physical museums. How do we take the Smithsonian to them? How do we take the Smithsonian to every home and, and every classroom? And obviously, digital technologies are a key part of that. And, and some of the things, including virtual reality, augmented reality, are some of the things that we're, we're testing out, because it is a way to expand our kind of educational mandate. And I do think these technologies will get you know get uh, get broader adoption. But as you say, sometimes there, these things are... Uh, just take a little while. In fact, it reminds me, the first time I think we met in person was 20 years ago and backstage at an Eagles concert, not long after AOL merged with Time Warner. Uh, and and uh, even then, when we did the merger, uh, which was in 2000, so 22 years ago, we talked about at the time what was going to happen with streaming technologies for, for uh, movies and, and, and television. Uh, we talked about what was going to happen with music being you know, digitized. Things like Napster were just Bumbling, bumbling at the time, that and there was a lot of nervousness in the in the music industry about it. The things that we we, we identified 20 years ago as, as being uh, likely to happen uh, and likely to happen soon did happen, but they took longer you know to happen. And sadly, that company, Able and Time Warner together, weren't able to capitalize on some of those uh, opportunities. In retrospect, you know, we really should have led the charge, not not to have it be. Apple with the, the iPod or, or Spotify or, or, or uh, Netflix or other things that really were the, the ultimate successors. It was clear even 20 years ago what was going to happen. Uh, we just didn't get organized to be able to pursue those opportunities in, in the way I wish we had so some of the sometimes it's timing sometimes it's just execution, not having the right people focused on the right priorities and working together in the right you know right kind of ways. and so that was one of the, the the lessons from that that merger it you know it could have been this dominant company ended up uh, kind of shooting itself in the foot.
3: okay, let's go back to AOL. So uh, the story is your brother talks about an opportunity. You get a job that ultimately morphs into AOL. What is the special sauce that you bring? What is your skill that allows you to be successful and allows the companies you're working with to be successful?
4: I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to say. I think it's, a, it's probably a, like most people mix of things. I think I, I do have a, a certain... Sense of the future, a certain sense of what's possible. I think I think that that that's helpful. I do bring a certain mm. passion and and persistence to it. We talked about you know some of that before. I think that that's uh, helpful. Uh, I think I do bring a particular uh, particularly in the early days of AOL, a particular uh, you know, skill set around marketing. You know, one of some of the things that we did to really. Build the AOL brand and and even distribute these free trial discs to the world to get people to you know try out Some of those marketing things I think we're also kind of in my in my uh, wheelhouse. I think I'm pretty good at building teams and and getting people to work together on a on a, a shared mission and, and, and make it something that is aspirational, kind of a, a battle worth fighting. I think those are some of the dynamics, but I also would point out that none of the things I've been able to do I could have done on my own. It really is about the, the team and, and even those early AOL days. I brought some of that marketing sense. Two of the other co-founders, Mark Sheriff, brought the technology sense. Jim Kimsey brought the more the business financial sense. And you know, none of the three of us could have done that without the other, you know, the other two. So it, it's a, just a, always a reminder to me about this notion of, of uh, you know, we talked earlier about entrepreneurship really being a, a team sport. I have certain things I can contribute, uh, but there are many other things I'm not good at, and need to make sure the overall team has the right mix of, of skills and a shared sense of purpose and passion.
3: Okay. I remember getting a free subscription to AOL via Warner Brothers Records. They had a, I think they had like 10 free subscriptions. They had to give me one in 92. And then I started to hear from college students based on an article I wrote in the Tower Records magazine saying, you know, can I connect with you via the internet? But I really did not become active although I had a modem 1200 bought at the time and i was connecting it wasn't really till the summer of 95 that i became say i was an active user was ultimately a gross understatement when did you know on the inside that you'd reached a turning point that you were either gaining traction or traction was imminent
4: well it was about that time we started in 85 but as i said before it was really 10 years of 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 Slog you know, to stay alive, try different things to, to, to ultimately get successful. Uh, you know, we did go public in 1992 as the first internet company to go public, so that was a little bit of a rite of passage. But even then, there was considerable skepticism in our IPO. We raised ten million dollars, and the value of AOL that day was seventy million dollars, and nobody knew or cared about this little company AOL that was you know going public It was kind of a you know a non-event. Um, and uh, for a few more years, it was still a struggle. Most people, you know, weren't really believers in, in the idea of the Internet, but it was about 95, 96, where interest uh, started accelerating. You know, people started hearing about this thing called the World Wide Web. People started hearing about some of the services available on this Internet thingy and, and started wanting to get online. And thankfully, at that point in time, because we've been at it for so long, you know AOL was kind of in the right place at the right time and that really drove our our growth in the late you know 90s uh and and uh at our peak uh about half of all the internet traffic in the United States went through AOL so it was to me an example of of believing early in the idea sticking with it even though it took a, a decade and there were a bunch of of uh near death experiences there even my parents at one point called and said like Steve it's a, like it's not working it's you know maybe it's time to like you know, give it up and get a real job, and no, oh, I think I think I think it will work. Give me, I think I think I'm gonna stick with it. And eventually, eventually, we we uh, we broke through. So it's a uh, to me, it's sort of revolution. Sometimes happen in evolutionary ways, and you have to you know kind of take the long view and and kind of be able to you know kind of live to fight another day. But to answer your question, it was sort of you know, '95, '96 where things really accelerated. I also remember I think it was probably '97. Uh, we moved, to, you know, from charging per hour to unlimited use. Not surprisingly, usage skyrocketed, and uh, we, our systems went down. There was you know, so much demand that basically, it you know, systems crashed and it was for twenty three hours. AOL was was inaccessible, uh, which obviously was a problem because we had tried to get people to you know, rely on us, and we were not you not know, providing the service they understandably expected. So, in that sense, it was kind of mortifying. But also, it was it was it was in one way gratifying because it had gone from this thing that nobody cared about to suddenly it was this national story. It was the lead story on the TV networks, the lead headline in most of the newspapers, AOL down. And even a few years before, nobody even cared about AOL. Like, who cares whether AOL is up or down? That's not, a, that's not a story. So that to me was a at one point where, where it felt like the internet had arrived, AOL had arrived. It had gone from being ignored to being essential.
2: You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
5: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull.
6: A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink
3: Okay. Meanwhile, you get married and start a family. And frequently being an entrepreneur, a musician, which is almost like being an entrepreneur, requires all your time. Income is low. Uh, Did you hesitate saying, well, it's like talking about your parents calling, you know, the job or do you always feel that maybe I'll land on my feet? What were your thoughts going through your head then?
4: No, I think there were there were some tough moments. Uh, it was I was still in my twenties that you know, we when we got started at uh, mid twenties, and so when we went public, uh, I was early thirties. So this was kind of the, the real difficult years were kind of late late twenties, and and I think there were some moments where I wondered if I should do something else, but I really believed in in the idea, and thankfully, you know, was able to kind of uh, you know kind of get get by and and kind of as I said before kind of live to live to fight another day. Again, that's not, you know, just my story. It's a pretty common entrepreneurial story, as you say. It's a pretty common story in other industries, including, you know, music where people are, you know, struggling for a while. Bruce Springsteen was playing a whole lot of clubs that nobody cared about until finally he was able to to, to break through. And and I think you know, it, it's a little bit of a test. You learn some things About yourself doing that process you also have some experiences that probably do make you better and stronger ultimately uh but uh you know it it was there was some difficult you know periods of time but thankfully i i stuck with it and eventually even though sometimes it felt like the light at the end of the tunnel was the light was far away and flickering you know i kind of stayed with it and eventually the tunnel got a little shorter and the light got a little brighter
3: okay so AOL is marching along in tech, you have to be ahead of the game or you die. Whereas like other industries talking about internet, in, uh, intellectual property industries, they have a catalog, they have a backlist, which keeps them alive. So AOL starts to roll. To what degree were you focused on where we're going next?
4: I was mostly focused on where we go next, and then secondarily I focused on continuing to build the team to scale. So we started with a couple dozen people, by the time we went public, it was less than 200 people. Uh, six, seven years later, it was ten thousand people. So it really, it really scaled up pretty, uh, pretty dramatically. So I, I had to, like many entrepreneurs, you know, learn to to not do certain things I had been doing and and build a team that I could empower and trust to do them. Uh, because I needed to focus on on some things that I could perhaps uniquely do. And some of it was trying to understand what was next and positioning the company for it. Some was, you know, building the team. Some of it also was being kind of a spokesman evangelist for the medium. I had to do a lot of things in the particularly the late nineties to educate people around about the internet, the press, you know, Congress, other 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 folks to Uh, other people in in other countries even that, you know, because AOL was visible, I became kind of a a spokesperson, not just for AOL, but in many ways for the the industry. So I had to focus on those things. I had to, you know, spend less time on some of the things I had done, including some of the marketing things or some of the product things or some of the technology things that I'd, I'd spent more time on in the early, early years.
3: Okay, so from my perspective, once again, I had a free subscription when you charge by the hour, never mind a free subscription through the 90s. I was living on the service. It was a big education. I remember vividly in the summer of 1996, you could launch a browser on AOL. But for me, the real breakthrough moment was in the summer of 2000. I went to visit my sister in Minneapolis, where she had a high speed connection which, of course, led you to Napster. Now, in this particular case, I maintain—I ultimately got to pay for a while—my AOL and the high-speed connection, I got quite away, right away. But for me, what killed AOL or put a dent in it was more just the fact there was a high speed connection sold by the cable company or third party. And that was $20 right there. And people didn't want to spend multiple $20 as opposed to it being the web that put a dent in AOL. What do you think from your inside view? Yeah, I think think
4: that's fair. The the way uh, AOL, when it first launched it as other competitors at the time, uh, was separated from the Internet because at the time, and when we started in 1985, no, it's hard for people to believe this, but it's true, it was actually illegal for consumers or businesses to be on the Internet. It, it, a few years later, Congress passed some legislation to commercialize the Internet, but in the early years, it was separate. When the Internet got commercialized, that actually accelerated AOL's growth because people wanted to be on the Internet. We integrated a, a very fast web browser, so actually you could get the websites through uh, AOL faster, particularly with slow slow modems, than you could uh, with most of the other internet service providers. And in addition to that, we provided a whole suite of services that were exclusive to AOL: people connection, you know, a lot of exclusive content, and and uh, and other other services. So, sort of the internet and a whole lot more for about the same price as the internet only. And that's really what drove our our, our hyper growth in the late nineteen yeah, nineties. Uh, you're right; the transition to broadband was was the uh, more challenging. We actually argued in Congress to, to pass legislation to open up the cable broadband networks so it would work like the dial-up uh, narrowband networks. The phone companies were required to op- allow other people to operate on their, their networks. The cable companies were not required to do that. Uh, and that effort it did not succeed. And so the, the, essentially the broadband networks remained closed as opposed to being open, which was one of the reasons that led to our merger with Time Warner, because the, part of the reason to do that Was Time Warner at the time had Time Warner Cable, which was the largest cable system with the largest broadband footprint. So we knew the market was moving to broadband. We couldn't on our own get there. And so by merging uh, with Time Warner, we'd have a clearer path to broadband as well as obviously all the other you know, businesses that were part of Time Warner, including some of the you know, media business, Warner Music, Warner Brothers, you know CNN, uh, HBO, you know Time Inc., you know many, many other things that were part of that. So it was sort of the obvious thing to do in terms of ensuring our path to broadband, as well as having a broad suite of really great brands uh, that would be more valuable in a in a in a digital world. So that really was the the motivator. Of doing it. unfortunately, once we did merge. Uh, that that some of the synergies that struck me as obvious were not really pursued, Uh, integrating AOL and and Time Warner Cable. So it was one bundled offering, which is what you you mentioned before, never happened. They ended up really competing with each other as opposed to benefiting from each other and ultimately that led to you know so sort of not capitalizing on somebody's opportunities which which uh, led to the AOL going from the leader of the pack to being you know kind of irrelevant now which is which is sad to see and uh, sad to say but that that that's the reality i think the the takeaway for me goes back to some of the things we talked about before getting the you know the vision right is is helpful and important but that's really just the starting point. If you look at the initial press release we wrote when we merged a and Time Warner 22 years ago, it was largely accurate in predicting what was going to happen over the next you know, 10 or 20 years. Uh, but our inability to organize the company to capitalize on those opportunities and some of the friction between different divisions basically hobbled our ability to execute against that vision. And ultimately, that led to you know, the company being broken up.
3: So, at what point, if the merger happened in two thousand, uh, at what point did you have the idea, and was Time Warner always the target, or were there other companies uh, in the mix?
4: There are other companies in the mix. In, in uh, 1998, you know, the when the internet really was, uh, you know, growing dramatically in popularity, and AOL's growth rate was accelerating dramatically. Also, our, our stock market valuation accelerated dramatically. We went from, mentioned we went public in 1992 with 70 million. By late 1999, it was $160 billion. It was actually the best performing stock of the decade, it was something like 11,000% increase from the time we went public. And so we did see the value of, of having a more diversified mix of businesses. So we did want to use our, our stock, our currency, if you will to merge with other companies, we considered a lot of different options, including some communications companies. We had discussions with AT&T about merging, for example. We also talked to a a number of of, uh, internet companies, eBay, Electronic Arts, others around uh, merging. But but we always kept our eye on the prize, which we did believe was time Warner for the reasons I said before. It was unique in being able to provide what at the time, at least, I thought was a path to broadband Band that we couldn't get on our own and couldn't get with any other other company, which is why I pursued that in particular. And indeed, the first conversation I had with Jerry Levin, who was, as you know, the CEO of Time Warner at the time, proposing the idea of merging our companies, within the first minute of explaining why I thought we should merge our companies, I said, "And if we." Can do this, I will step aside as CEO and let you run the combined company, uh, because I knew it'd be hard to get a deal with uh, with Time Warner done. Our value was quite a bit higher than than their value, and there are all kinds of other issues that were going to be complicating issues. But since was the only path to get it done, was to basically propose that uh, that the the Time Warner side essentially run the combined company. Uh, so that's what I did. And when we when we did close the merger, I did step aside as, as CEO. Even AOL didn't know longer reported to me. I was chair of the board for a couple of years uh, and then uh, you, know, you know on the board for another year or two and finally decided it was time to move on. We just had a difference of opinion of what to do. And I think they were getting tired of me saying, let's go left when they wanted to go right. And I was tired as well. So it was time to, to, to kind of part ways. And, and uh, even though it was obviously a, a big disappointment and that ultimately led me on this path that I've been on for most of the past two decades, uh, instead of uh, starting another company, starting a uh, revolution, a company to invest in many entrepreneurs uh, with a particular bias, as we've discussed, around investing in entrepreneurs outside of the usual hubs like uh, like Silicon Valley.
3: So the legend is that ultimately the Time Warner side of the company became resistant to the AOL people and the AOL ideas. Is that an accurate description?
4: Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think in retrospect, we could have handled it better. We probably were a little toned out, not as diplomatic as we could have been. There was, there was definitely a sense that these... You know, new kids on the block that haven't been around long are, are coming in and telling us, you know, what to do. And I, I'm sure there was, you know, more of that than I was even aware of, which was a, which was a mistake. But there also was a, a reluctance on the part of a lot of, of parts of the of what was then Time Warner to really fully embrace the internet, fully embrace the idea of, of, of digital convergence, fully embrace the the reality that also meant it would challenge some of the existing business models, and have to evolve some of the interesting business models. And I think there was just a, a reluctance to do that and a, and a sense that it might take longer uh, for some of those, you know, innovations to, to, to happen. I, think, sort of, I remember a meeting probably at least 20 years ago with some of the folks um, on the Warner Music side and talking about what's likely, I thought, going to happen around uh, streaming and what likely also going to happen around, um, you know, kind of how music companies might be structured and over time, maybe it's a little bit more like you know venture capital, where they're investing in in a new artist and and share in the upside across multiple uh, you know parts of the artist career. What then became known as three hundred and sixty deals. It seemed like it was a pretty obvious thing that was going to happen, but there was a lot of resistance to that because at the time, as you know, the way that or business was organized is you know the, the music companies just you know, put out the music, and you know somebody else did the concerts, and somebody else had the publishing, and somebody else did this, and somebody else did that, and And having a more integrated view of it was just not something most people either believed in or just believed, you know, practically they could get everybody organized and headed in that, you know, that direction. So, again, it goes back to what I said earlier. It's sort of a, a lesson around, you know, the idea is important, but ultimately it's putting that idea into action. Uh, and the fact that we had some of the right ideas around what was going to happen with broadband, or what was going to happen with streaming, or what was going to happen with uh, with many many different things, is sort of irrelevant because we weren't able to be the, the company that actually you know made that happen. And so uh, that's I apply that lesson to the the work we're doing now at Revolution, including uh, Rise of the Rest. And part of the reason I even wrote the the book on the Rise of the Rest is I really wanted to you know, tell the stories of these. These entrepreneurs, these companies, that were doing amazing things uh, that really inspired me and 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 you know, also uh, surprised me in in, in many ways, uh, and I wanted to make sure that you know, people understood what was happening with these with these companies, and particularly understood what was happening in these cities uh, that were kind of being renewed and revitalized because of the work of, of of those entrepreneurs. So it goes back to this issue of of trying to you know make sure. Yeah, we don't just say we think the rest should rise. We hit the road, whether it be bus tours or launching a fund or writing a book to actually do everything we can to make sure the rest rise, to make sure we kind of level the playing field for entrepreneurs in America.
3: So in business books and in media, the AOL Time Warner merger is portrayed as the worst in history of business. To what degree does that affect, and usually people writing that have no vision, no knowledge of the inside, is that something that has emotionally hurt you? Is that something on your back, or is that something those people just don't understand what's going on, and I've moved on?
4: Well, a little of both. I obviously don't love the fact that it it's viewed as the worst merger in history. I understand why it is. It was the largest merger in history, and it was you know, the execution of it was flawed in the ways I mentioned, so I think it's fair to characterize it as that. Um, I of course have a slightly different view, or maybe more than slightly different view of exactly what happened and why it happened, uh, and also have a the view of the CEO of AOL, which might be different than the view of the CEO of Time Warner, because for for us and our shareholders, it, in retrospect, turned out to be a, a good thing to do. Uh, but uh, but certainly understand some of the you know, the 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 dynamics, so just in terms of the economics of that. Just to quickly you know cover it when when we did the you know the the merger. Uh, as I recall, the numbers were something like the combined company uh, would do about forty billion of revenue and ten billion of, of profit, something in those that magnitude. Uh, and uh, AOL contributed about a billion of that ten billion of profit, but AOL shareholders ended up with fifty-five percent of the combined company. So for the AOL shareholders, it was a way not just to have a this what we thought would be this great path to broadband but also a more diversified mix of businesses. And we concluded it'd be better for the AOL shareholders instead of owning 100% AOL, to own 55% of this much larger, you know, much uh, much more profitable, much more diversified you know, you know, company. I get it that the people on the Time Warner side, you know, w- w- in retrospect, did not view it the same way. I understand why you know, people were frustrated. And when the stock market crashed after the merger, not just for our company, but for many other companies, obviously, a lot of people got hurt by that. I also understand that, but, but do bring the lens of, of uh, you know, what I was uh, charged with doing as CEO of AOL.
3: Okay. Time Warner was ultimately destroyed as a company broken up, pieces sold off. Presently, David Zaslav runs, uh, has all the content with Discovery, with an amazing amount of debt, and keeps cutting costs and programs. Uh, Rupert Murdoch sold the Fox, other than the channel and the uh, TV stations, I believe, sold all the library and the production of Fox to Disney. What should these people be doing, and what do you view the future of this big-time entertainment going forward?
4: I don't know. I think uh, others have a more informed view. I've been largely out of it for for two decades and focused on this this next generation of, of entrepreneurs. Uh, I think some of the things that Disney has done recently are consistent with the kind of things I thought AOL and Time Warner could do in terms of really driving some of the streaming as I think what they've done with you know, Disney Plus in particular is really quite impressive and and, uh, and and because they really got the whole company behind that initiative. And and so I think when companies really get organized and, and have strategic priorities indeed need strategic imperatives and Disney basically said we now recognize the future is is streaming, we need to control our destiny. We need to have more direct control of our customer, not just rely on Netflix or others as as sort of intermediaries. They put kind of everything behind that, and that ultimately led to the success. I think that's hard for big companies to do, but that's what they need to do. One of the reasons I'm so Excited about backing entrepreneurs across a variety of sectors. Is having lived that, I kind of know how the big companies, the big companies, and in, in the d- industries that are up for up for grabs now outside of uh, the the entertainment business, music business, the publishing businesses, the, the digital businesses that, that were associated with AOL and Time Warner. But some of the things we talked about before, like a healthcare industry or or other other industries. I understand kind of the plays that the big companies are going to run, and those plays are even clearer when uh, the economy is tougher, the markets are tougher, inflation is is, 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 is is rising. What's going to likely happen, many of those companies will pull back on their long-term innovation initiatives because they cost a lot of money and they have an uncertain future, which actually creates even more of an opening for the entrepreneurs that are trying to challenge those incumbents and, and bring on you know new ideas. And so, having lived through that, watching little companies that were just around the fringes when when uh, we we did the deal with uh, AOL and Time Warner, I stepped aside. Companies like you know, Google and Amazon, we actually had a deal with Google early on where we, we AOL had 5% of the equity in Google because they wanted to you know, help us use their search engine for our, our audience. You know, those companies have risen over the last 20 years while uh, AOL has, has been in decline. And now are these you know, new powerhouses? That's going to happen in industries all across. Across the, the the economy, and it's going to happen in cities all across the you know the the, the country, and so that's really why the it's sort of some of the work I'm doing now around uh, rise the rest and backing these entrepreneurs and supporting these cities, and partly informed by that that experience and a belief that most of the innovation will come from uh, these these entrepreneurs with 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 new ideas, new business models, new perspectives that can move more quickly, and and and. Uh, 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 you know, try things in a more kind of uh, agile kind of way than big companies that, you know, big companies generally, you know, play defense when young entrepreneurial companies are are playing offense. You know, the Big companies generally are, are are just, you know, more short-term oriented. You know, younger companies are, are kind of take the long-term view. So I think it's a very exciting time for innovation, entrepreneurship in, in the country. And it's going to impact every aspect of our lives, you know, how we learn, how we eat, how do we stay healthy, how do we move around, how do we invest, etc. cetera. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that innovation is going to come from this next generation of entrepreneurs. And a lot of that innovation is going to happen in these dozens of of rise the rest cities I I write about in the book you know Silicon Valley will still be strong, will still be the most innovative startup hub in the country, indeed probably in the world. Uh, but we hit peak Silicon Valley a few years ago, and and the rise the rest is accelerating. The pandemic has been a a tipping point, and so I think people are you know should pay more attention to the people and places that have generally been uh, left left out of the, the innovation discussion. I think that's where the action is. That's where the, the puck is going.
3: Okay, so you spoke in both the book and earlier about three waves. Could briefly, could you delineate the first and second wave and expand upon the third wave where we are now?
4: Well, the, the first wave of the internet was goes back to some of the things we talked about before with companies like AOL, but obviously there were many others. It was taking it what was just an idea and turning it into a. A reality building the on-ramps building the servers building the content and other reasons that people should get online uh and so that really was you know the 80s and 90s and and you know that was really you know when the internet went exactly what you said before sort of 95 has sort of arrived and you know it took 10 15 20 years for you know before it really kind of arrived but eventually it, it did That then set the stage for the second wave of the internet, and because at that point the internet was built and everybody was connected, you didn't have to focus so much on the building phase or the infrastructure phase. You could essentially focus on building on top of the internet, and particularly building software and apps on top of the internet. And a lot of the big innovations in the last couple of decades have basically been that. You know, apps, whether it be you know facebook or twitter or google or other things it's basically software writing on top of the internet and that's been super important obviously created some super uh, valuable companies the third wave of the internet which is the phase we're now in is and we talked about some of this before is sort of when the internet meets the real world and that's when it really is you know disrupting some of the big industries like healthcare and the important aspects of of our lives and that's going to require i believe a different Entrepreneurial playbook. It's not just about the software, not just about the apps, not just about trying to get the idea spread. You know, you know, kind of you know, virally, and then figuring out ways to monetize it. It's going to require a more systems level change to really change sectors like uh, like healthcare. So partnerships will become more important. Policy will become more important. These tend to be regulated sectors and entrepreneurs don't like dealing with regulators, but the reality is they have to if they're going to innovate in this in, in this third wave. Uh, and it's also going to play to the rise of rest in place. It's going to advantage the cities that have some of the domain expertise and credibility in, in some of these sectors that are up for grabs. So, I think even though the first wave was Certainly exciting and taking the internet from being an idea to being a reality. And the second wave also was very exciting because all the things that we had been built on top of the internet, that we particularly during the pandemic were able to take advantage of in ways that seemed inconceivable just you know, 20 years ago. I think the third wave when it really is you know, the internet meeting the real world is where the most interesting and most successful and most valuable companies will will be created, and it will have a, a, a very a, a substantial impact in terms of of, of America's leadership in innovation, and entrepreneurship. And I hope, which is why we're working so hard on the rise, and rest. I hope it will be a more inclusive approach to you know, innovation, and entrepreneurship that does you know, include more people, does include more places. There are more people who can therefore be optimistic about the future as opposed to anxious about the future. We can maximize the shots on goal, maximize the ideas we try by backing more more entrepreneurs in, in more cities around the country. And hopefully people reading the Rise of the Rest book will see why I'm so enthusiastic about this and so optimistic about it. It's, it's something that I've had the privilege of having a a front row seat, uh, literally, on <laughs> a bus in some cases over the last decade as he you know, developed, and I'm uh, excited about the rise of rest as I was in that those early days of, of the internet when it I believed in the idea even when others didn't. I, 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 to me, the rise of rest is sort of deja vu all over again.
3: And sectors other than healthcare that are ripe for integration with the internet or to be disrupted.
4: Oh, did I not mention them? But basically if you look at the most important aspects of your lives they've changed a little bit uh in in the last 10 20 30 years they'll change a lot more in the next 10 20 30 years and that's this acceleration of of, of digital technology acceleration of of, of the internet uh, and you know healthcare for example is one sixth of the economy it it doesn't work all that well you know, and there're ways to provide better care better outcomes greater convenience and lower costs that new uh, new people with new ideas, many of those will come from young companies led by entrepreneurs. Uh, are going to kind of you know lead the charge on we're reimagining our food systems, which generally are too industrial and not particularly you know healthy. And you know companies that that we back there like uh, like a Sweetgreen or and, and many others are are really leading you know, the charge. There are a lot of things happening around reimagining education, both the K twelve education as well as you know kind of colleges and universities. You know, lifelong learning. You know, know, digital technology will play a key role. You know, kind of there. So it really is. You know, just all across the you know the landscape in terms of really big industries that are likely to change a lot, and really important parts of our lives that are likely to change a lot. Yeah, what I would encourage people to do, which again is part of the reason I wrote the book, is don't just be a spectator watching this. If you have a particular passion or you have a particular insight jump in, do something about it. And the great thing about what's happening now with the rise to rest, and goes back to what we said before, 1,400 new venture firms in these rise to rest cities that didn't exist 10 years ago that are now existing, backing companies in in, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of American cities that historically didn't have venture capital. You can now do that anywhere. You shouldn't feel like you're in Ohio or Wisconsin or Iowa or or Tennessee or something, and so therefore you don't have the ability to participate in the startup sector, participate in the innovation economy. You're left out because you're not in 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 Silicon Valley or some other place. No, you you can be in the game, uh, and you can do it now. Uh, you just have to you know get started, and you just have to say instead of just looking at the problem and wondering if somebody else is going to solve it. I'm going to solve it. I'm going to do that by starting a company. I'm going to do it now, and I'm going to do it from wherever I am.
3: Okay. Just a couple more things, then we'll go. Big point in the book is about immigration. The HB1 visas. Certainly, there's been uh, stories in the news about a lot of people from foreign countries who would have stayed in the United States, ended up going back greatly to India and starting the businesses there. Are we gonna see a change in this? What's going on?
4: Yeah, we 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 must see a change. I've been working on this sadly unsuccessfully for the last decade. I actually testified in the Senate about nine years ago around immigration reform. And the reason is because the data is pretty clear that immigrants have played a central role in driving the American economy. About 40% of the successful you know, companies have, have been immigrants or children of immigrants. And part of what's made America so so you know, so compelling is this pioneering spirit, this being a magnet from talent all around the world that wants to be part of the American story, wants to build the next chapter of the American story. But we have made it more difficult for people to come. We have made it more difficult for people who are here, perhaps at a university, to stay. And as a result, we, we're losing some of that, you know, that that, that talent war to other other countries. And we need to we need to reverse it. It almost happened this past summer. Some legislation passed Congress only one uh, bill called the Chips and Science Act, which had some good things in it around you know, reshoring semiconductors and, and, you know, funding the development of more of these regional hubs, you know, ties in with our Rise to Rest uh, work. But also there was a startup visa provision that was at one point part of that, but when the final bill got done, it got kicked out, which is unfortunate. If, I, if we fast forward, you know, uh, a number of years and America ceases to be the the leader of the pack ceases to be the leading economy in the world. Ceases to be the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world. Uh, it li- very likely will be. We got this wrong. We, we lost that, that edge we had uh, globally as this as this as this magnet. So I'll continue to do whatever I can to try to you know support uh, uh, kind of you know, reform around immigration, so we can. Win this When this battle for particularly around some of the, the talent that you know likely could be the entrepreneurs of the future, building some of the, the companies of the future and creating lots of jobs for 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 Americans in the process
3: and we've covered a lot of the viewpoint of the entrepreneur that location is not that important now you can do it anywhere, but in conclusion, any other advice for entrepreneurs
4: well, first of all, I recognize uh, uh, that entrepreneurs are choosing a path that most people think is a risky path, and so it requires a certain boldness, a certain fearlessness to you know, take that path. I think we should understand that and and respect that. Uh, we also should recognize that sometimes people who try things stumble the first time. You know, it is the first at bat doesn't work. Uh, You know, but you kind of keep having to take shots and Babe Ruth was the home run king. He had more home runs than anybody else. Guess what? He also was a strikeout king. He had more strikeouts than anybody else. If you're swinging for the fences, you're not going to always get it. Sometimes you'll you'll end up with a strikeout. We also need to understand that. So if an entrepreneur tries something and it doesn't work. That doesn't mean they're a failure that just means that particular idea is is a failure so just getting more people to realize that the importance of it uh and even the if you go back to what we were talking about just a a bit, bit ago that america itself was a startup 250 years ago america was an idea most people around the world didn't think america would succeed just as most people don't think startups will succeed there was a lot of skepticism in the first couple of decades of that American you know, story. Somehow we powered through. Somehow we survived, and then we thrived, and we went from this fledgling, you know, almost hit the wall startup nation to the. Leader of the free world, and so how do we keep leading? We can't do that unless we're you know, leading around innovation. We're leaning into the future. We're, we're trying new things. We're taking risk, and we need to celebrate that as a core part of the American you know, story. And celebrate the entrepreneurs out there. Perhaps some listening to this right now that are you know taking that shot are the ones who are thinking about taking the shot, and maybe now's the time they'll step in into the game. So that again, that's my. You know, my real passion here is making sure I can do what I can uh, as to make sure America continues to lead, America continues to be a magnet for talent, America continues to be this innovative pioneering nation, but we do it in a more inclusive way that we do bring along more people, we do bring along uh, more places, and we can inspire the next generation to start here, build here, scale here, create jobs here, drive economic growth here. So for those entrepreneurs out there or those potential entrepreneurs out there, thank you for taking the the risk you're taking. Thank you for taking a, a shot. You know, keep fighting, and hopefully, ultimately, you'll you'll be successful, and that will then strengthen your community, the community you care about, by creating more jobs and opportunity in those communities. And collectively, that can also strengthen our nation.
3: Yeah, it's what I've been telling people for years now. There is no flyover country. All in America, obviously, there are pockets that don't have broadband, but essentially, all of America has broadband. Everybody has hundreds of channels. Everybody is hip. Everybody is informed. It's not like you're talking earlier. It takes a week to get the TV show in Hawaii. But I must admit, your book really fleshes it out. It really talks about the different locations and what is happening. And it's eye-opening, especially in an era where living costs may be much cheaper in between Boston, New York, In Silicon Valley, California. In any event, Steve, I want to thank you so much for taking the time, talking about your history and explaining your investment strategy across the country. So thanks again.
4: Thanks, Bob. Great to reconnect. Love your writings. Love your podcast. Keep it up.
3: Thanks so much. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz.